Welcome to Coffee House. Glad to have everybody, everybody here. Um, kind, of a, kind of a little bit different night. We're still talking about the goodness of God, but probably just in a little different framework. Uh, being, being Jay's last, uh, last teaching time here as, as pastor and, uh, of Station Hill. And uh, it, I, I, hope one, one, I hope that you understand the gift you all are to us that how thankful we are for you guys and your hunger and, and, and your hunger for the word. And it is just an awesome thing uh, for Jay and I. And second of all, I hope that you recognize how incredible it is to have a, have a dozen years, 12 years of this kind of consistent teaching. And not just consistent teaching, but excellent teaching, right? Because what, what excellent Bible teaching does is not convey information, right? It tunes your soul so that when God speaks, your soul resonates. Right, that's what you do as a Bible teacher. You, you, you get people so that when you're reading scripture, when you're praying, and God speaks, your soul resonates. So you can recognize the voice of God. That's what Bible teachers do. And Jay has done that extraordinarily well. Extraordinarily well. So very, very thankful. Um, we will meet next Wednesday if you want to come back. Uh, we will meet for the rest of, the rest of the semester. This is not the end. I hope, hope everybody... Just in case, you know, if I'm here by myself, I suppose, you know, we can move back up to one of the little classrooms where our kids spit up. So that'll be kind of exciting. Um, but yes, we will be meeting next week. The week after that, you'll be surprised if you come because we're off for spring break. And so we'll do fall break. Spring, fall, what is it? Yeah, I'm an engineer. I stay in a dark, cold room. Hey, I don't even know if it's sunny outside today. Uh, but anyway, okay, fall break. That's a good point. Uh, so we'll do next week, then fall break, and then we'll we'll meet for the rest of the rest of the semester down through. Take Thanksgiving off, and then and then go through the rest of the semester. But and continue on the goodness of God, right? And and because this whole thing is about Jesus, right? It's not about me. It's not about Jay. It's about Jesus. And so we're going to keep teaching about Jesus and talking about Jesus, right? And glorifying God. And so that's what we do. And I think that's about where we are. We got. Do we have a Slido room? If you there we go. Slido, we, we're, we're not gonna, we're, we won't let you sign up tonight for the email. That's my fault. All right, so the Slido room, you can either hit that QR code or do 2970073. My optometrist is going to make me get glasses soon. Um, and uh, you can ask questions and then like the questions and bring them up to the top if you, if you want to. Um, and I think we'll be good. All right. Uh, let's, let's pray and get started. Father God, we are thankful. Uh, thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, thankful for your goodness. Uh, Father, let us seek first the kingdom, because what we seek is what we will see. And so, Father, let us look all around us and see your goodness, and see your grace, and see your kindness. And let us live those lives that conform to Christ, that conform to Jesus. And so, Father, in this teaching tonight, Father, let us remember and, and see what you have done and then live in, in the expectation, right? Well, let's anticipate grace, right? Anticipate your grace to come as we look at, at, at why we do this and, and what you have done for us and through us. Uh, bless Jay as he teaches tonight. Uh, we make this an offering to you, a gift to the church. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, and I want to highly encourage you uh, to continue out this semester uh, as Brian is going to be faithful to carry you all the way to the end. Uh, and then uh, we're going to see what God has for us next semester. But some of you have asked, will something continue when the new pastor arrives? We will have some kind of opportunity uh, for you on Wednesday nights. It might look a little different uh, and uh, we'll fit it uh, to his calling and vision as well. Uh, but, uh, but certainly uh, there will be an opportunity for you guys. Um, tonight, uh, I want to do a couple things. I want to look back 
I want to remind you why theology matters, uh, kind of have a, a devotional look ahead a little bit as well. Uh, and so I, I just went back and, and did a little, uh, um, uh, you know, remembering where we've come from. So on actually the second page of your handout is an outline of everything that we've covered um, since spring of 2011. Uh, that's when we first started doing Coffeehouse Theology, and uh, most of you know the story. Um, as some of you have heard it every semester, uh, and I'm sorry for that, but, but Coffeehouse Theology, that name came from a book that I read when I was a student minister at Brentwood. Uh, and I was under conviction during that time that we had a lot of young people uh, who needed something a little bit deeper than what we were able to provide in Sunday morning Bible study or our Wednesday night uh, youth group. Uh, and so I asked a, a member of our church at the Brentwood campus to let me use his coffee shop on Thursday afternoons. And I began to teach through Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology. Uh, and it was incredible. And the students, and the way they responded, and the way they brought their friends, and sometimes we'd have four, and sometimes we'd have 40, uh, as, as it goes with teenagers. But uh, it was a lot of fun, enjoyed doing it. And so what I liked was teaching deeper content, but in a more conversational, laid-back setting, where they could ask questions and interact. Uh, and it was, a, it was a rich time. Um, and it was not only for the students, but it was also for me. Uh, as you know, the challenge of ministry to me, having started in student ministry, is can you take a concept like the Trinity and explain it to a seventh grade boy, right? Um, and so I think that should be like a class in seminary, uh, you know, theology for seventh grade boys. Because if you can take the Bible uh, and apply it and not say things that they will twist and take out of context, right, that's winning half your battle. But uh, it was just really fun for me. And so when we started Station Hill a couple years later, I thought, you know, I'd like to bring this back for this congregation. And, and, and we were experimenting with a lot of things. That's part of the fun of launching a church. You don't know what will work, what won't work, uh, all of those kind of things. But I thought, let's, let's try midweek. As you know, a lot of churches have abandoned midweek programming altogether. Uh, if you're old school like I was, we were at church Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon for discipleship training, Sunday night for Sunday night church service. We have visitation on Monday night. Uh, there'd be some excuse to do something on Tuesday night. And then you have Wednesday night. We had royal ambassadors, RAs, and GAs when I was a kid. And there was various things going on in the church. So I was raised that way. But I just thought, you know, I, I miss seeing you guys during the week. Like Sunday to Sunday, that's, that's a long time. Uh, to not connect with you. And so we value what happens with students and children midweek. Uh, and so we thought, let's try something for adults as well. And so kind of pulled this idea off the shelf that I'd used with students and we started. Uh, and so we started with uh, systematic theology was the very first thing we did, uh, working through Grudem's textbook. Then we did Kostenberger's God, Marriage and Family. Uh, we did Read the Bible for Life, George Guthrie, uh, and then I used some of that same material in 2020 when we read through the Bible as a church, and can I give you a teaser? In 2024, all nine campuses, we're going to read through the Bible together. Uh, that's what I wanted to do my first year as pastor. Um, as I visited the various campuses this spring and did the town hall meetings, I was very encouraged because I thought I would get a lot of uh, all right, pastor, you know, we need more buildings, we need more parking, we need more staff, we need more budget money. Instead, I got, hey, pastor, what are you going to do to keep all nine campuses together? And so as I began to pray and process that, I thought, what would be better than all nine campuses reading through the whole Bible for a whole year? Uh, and so that's going to be something that we do. You're going to hear more about that in October. Uh, and, uh, and so we've struck a deal with Lifeway. They're going to provide their chronological reading Bibles at a steep discount for us. Uh, we've got digital rights as well to be able to put that out uh, to you guys in emails if you sign up and opt in. So we're going to try to make it easy for everybody to read all the way through the Bible. And then we're going to preach wherever we're at. 
uh, in the Bible reading plan as campus pastors so that across all nine campuses, we're all on the same page going all the way through God's word. So, uh, but that began, right? The seedbed for those things happened in places like this because as a pastor, you get to experiment. You get to see, does this stick with our folks? Does this resonate with them? So one of the things Brian mentioned earlier, and uh, I'm already getting ahead of, my, ahead of where I had it out in my own notes, but I want to thank you guys because you have grown us. You grow the preachers and the teachers because you respond to God's word. And when you do so, we see the Holy Spirit work and we're like, okay, so we're going to go that direction. You know, there's other things, quite frankly, that we try and they bomb. And we're like, nope, the church, that's not the direction the church wants to go. But that's one of the ways that God leads us. Uh, and so you coming, engaging, leaning in has blessed us. Again, I didn't know if anybody would ever show up on Wednesday nights. But look at you guys. You're here, and you keep coming back for more. Uh, and so that's a blessing to us. So we covered Read the Bible for Life in spring 2012. Uh, in fall of 2012, we had preached through Revelation on Sunday morning. As you know, in 30 minutes, you can only go so far with a 30-minute sermon. And Harold Fambro always shakes his head because he's like, Jay, you've never preached 30 minutes, right? Okay, maybe it's 35 or 37 or, you know, but 30-ish minutes, right? And so, but, but what I began to do was to take the things I didn't have time to fully get into. Uh, the, the excruciating part of being a pastor and preparing a sermon is what you leave on the cutting room floor. I mean, I leave two-thirds of the material out of what I study and prepare. Uh, for a Sunday. Now, that study and preparation is important, right? Because it helps me recognize what, what the high points are. But the reality is, is you have all this other material. So we, we had some seasons in which I was able to, to preach that extra or teach that extra to you guys out of my preaching. So that was fall of 2012. The spring of 2013, we went through an evangelism training together. Fall of 2013, Romans, we did the same thing uh, as I had done the fall previous. As we preached through Romans on Sunday morning, shared the other material on Wednesday nights. Then in spring of 2014, we began to focus on ecclesiology, the church, some of John Stott's material. Why? We were getting ready to move to this campus. We were uh, under contract on the land. We were beginning to build. We wanted to talk about what the church is. To be sure, we didn't have the mistaken idea that the church was these four walls. Uh, so we spent some time talking about what the church is. So fall of 2014, we talked about spiritual disciplines and went through the Psalms together. Then we began to do something that we called immersion nights, nights in which we take a little longer, go even a little deeper. Uh, and so that year we talked about the Jesse tree uh, and uh, gave a tool to families and to you guys on how you connect Old Testament prophecies to Advent, to the Christmas season. Uh, and there's, there's great tools for that online uh, if you want to go look those up. Spring of 2015, we did Christology. Uh, and our immersion night was the final days of Jesus, walking through uh, the last week uh, of Jesus' earthly life. And then in fall of 2015, we did Brian Ball's favorite book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, and uh, we did the first days of Jesus uh, as we got to Advent that year. Uh, spring of 2016, we covered apologetics, being more sure of God. Uh, and then we began to work on some book studies. We did 1 Corinthians in fall of 2016. Uh, that we, it was an election year, so we did a night on politics and the gospel. Uh, we uh, covered Acts in spring of 2017. We did the pastoral letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy in fall of 2017. And we had another immersion night, the Reformation at 500. Uh, it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So we got into Martin Luther and all the reformers that night uh, and their impact on theology and culture and our world. Uh, then we covered 1st and 2nd Samuel, which came in handy 
You guys, you guys see after a while, right? See, these things come back around. We just preached uh, First and Second Samuel. And so what I taught you guys, we were able to pull back out uh, some of those notes. Uh, and it's, it's helpful. And so it's great. Uh, that when you're a pastor, you can revisit the same material, but God always shows me new things. And then in fall of 2018, we had done a Sunday morning series, and we took a step deeper with that on Wednesday nights uh, called the Imago Dei, Identity and Culture, that we're created in the image of God uh, and how we apply our sense of identity to these key cultural issues, marriage, gender, sexuality, race, politics, technology, uh, etc. And so it's always interesting to me when people, you know, are like, oh, as a church, you guys just or hopping on the, the latest topics. It's like, no, nope, we've been talking about all that for a long time. You know why? Because the Bible talks about it. Uh, and we did an immersion night with Nancy Piercy, uh, and, uh, who had just released her book, Love Thy Body, uh, which I still highly recommend to folks uh, dealing with these type of cultural issues. Uh, and then spring of 2019, uh, we had a little fun with the prophetic books. We called it Dan, Zeke, and the Rev, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. Uh, and then in fall of 2019, uh, we went through some Pauline letters, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians. In spring, summer, and fall in 2020, as the Lord would have it, we had planned a Bible reading plan. And lo and behold, you guys had way more time at home than you thought you were going to have in 2020. And so that worked out. I cannot tell you, there are probably over three dozen people who told me, you know, that they had never read through the Bible before. But 2020 gave them the opportunity to do that. Uh, and how it enriched their walk with Christ. And so in God's timing, we were able to do that together, uh, and we walked through the whole Word of God. And then in spring of 2021, uh, God had brought so many new amazing people to our church uh, during and after the pandemic uh, that we connected with a lot of members in ministry and had them share with you guys uh, about their, their ministry and uh, what they were doing. Then in fall of 2021, uh, we did a little ecclesiology to start the year, paralleling our Sunday morning series. And then Dr. Ortiz uh, did a conference's worth of material uh, in biblical archaeology. So you guys are guinea pigs for not only me and Brian, but also college and seminary professors like Dr. Ortiz. But uh, he presented that material uh, a few months later at a con uh, convention. Uh, had Aaron Bryant from our Avenue South campus come and do Gospel Conversations, and we did Jude. Uh, and then something that Brian's done actually twice, we did an immersion night on the intertestamental period, which you guys responded really well to. What happened during those 400 years between the Old and New Testament that set the stage for the coming of Christ? Uh, as most of you remember, uh, in 2022, we did systematic theology all the way through. This spring, uh, we took a new dive into church history. Uh, and so we uh, walk through church history together, and then this fall, of course, the goodness of God uh, in Philippians, Romans, and more. Uh, so we're, we're excited to look at uh, all that God has done. And when you look back, it's been quite a bit. And I'm looking around the room to see if there's anybody who was there that very first series. And I know there's at least one couple that is. Don and Margaret Reed, congratulations. So anybody else I miss? I don't see anybody else who was there. Uh, so we went back into the preschool at the space we rented, and we sat on these tiny little plastic preschool chairs uh, until you couldn't feel your backside anymore, uh, and then we knew it was time to go. But uh, Don and Margaret, you, I should have made some kind of diploma for you guys because you have endured and suffered much. Uh, but uh, as you know, they are wonderful servants and, and just incredible people and um, what hearts to learn. And so I, I, I realized this. If you've been with us for all 12 years, Don and Margaret have experienced the equivalent of 72 hours, right, credit hours of Bible college or seminary level classes. That would be the equivalent of two masters of arts in Christian education degrees. So 
I mean, there's, the school of Jay and Brian is not accredited, so I, I can't, uh, you know, I don't know that they'll, you know, do anything with that. You can get a job anywhere with that, but uh, maybe McDonald's will hire, I don't know. But anyway, but thank you guys for hanging with us through all of that. So just for some fun, I put together some bullet points. If you've been with us, you've read through the Bible twice and completed an entire survey class on Scripture during the pandemic while most people were just watching, binge-watching Netflix. So way to go. Uh, you've learned a conference worth of material from one of the leading evangelical archaeologists in the world. Uh, you have experienced the equivalent of four semesters of systematic theology using a seminary-level textbook, and you've done that twice. You have developed immunities to the flu, runny noses, explosive diarrhea, and vomiting by meeting in a weekday preschool classroom 15 minutes after the last kid left. And so that's what we realized. Great idea. Let's rent this preschool. Then on Wednesday nights, we walk back there, and there are these big warning signs plastered on every classroom. Warning, this classroom had a case of the flu today. This classroom had explosive diarrhea and vomiting. And we're like, well, the Lord will protect us, and so will hand sanitizer. Let's go. And so uh, it was quite the experience. So, so every time you sit in these nice, comfortable chairs in this big worship center, just say a little prayer of thanks to the Lord, right, that he provided a building and a facility for us. Uh, you heard from a best-selling author and apologetics expert four times. That's Elisa Childers. You discovered what happened in the 400 years of prophetic silence between the Old and New Testaments. You learned that everything, and I mean everything, comes back to what, Brian? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. It all ties back together. But as we've talked about, what was Jesus' most quoted book of the Bible? Deuteronomy. Right? So important, important that we know what Deuteronomy says. Uh, we heard a guest lecture from one of the world's leading expert on Christian ethics. That was Nancy Piercy. Uh, if you'll remember, a near uh, Holy Week, our children's ministry would put on what we called a living last supper. And then Joel Hilsden, who was raised in Jerusalem, Israel, uh, led us through two Seder meals. So you've experienced that. Uh, you have immersed yourself in biblical prophecy for two semesters. You've learned how to use Slido efficiently. Discovered there's a society among us that wants to see Brian Ball elected governor. And we found we have more than a few Monty Python fans as you pepper the feed with a few quotes. Uh, we've done a deep dive on 20 books of the Bible. So you guys have gone through 20 books of Scripture, line by line, verse by verse. And you have survived Brian reading straight through the judgment of the nations in Ezekiel. That was maybe the most depressing night we've ever had. Yeah, yeah. Brian even thought I was going to get up and leave. Right? But for effect... And it was effective because I've never forgotten it. He just read. And you think about the weight of what God was telling his people. And so Brian's up here shuddering, right, remembering. But, man, what an effective thing. And sometimes just reading Scripture, right, out loud has an effect. And it certainly did that night. Uh, you've heard from a guest lecturer from Princeton who was a teaching fellow at Eton College in England and is a graduate student at Yale Divinity School. That's none other than Brian's oldest son, Benjamin Ball. So the same guy who has taught the future princes and princesses, the future kings and queens of Europe, has also taught you uh, as he had a fellowship at Eton College. And then you have finally experienced free coffee at Coffee House Theology. Thank you, Mike and Jana Wilson. Where are you? Thank you. They arrive here early with their two kids. There they are. Thank you, guys. Because we called it Coffee House Theology, and one of people's biggest pet peeves was, where's the coffee? So they, Mike and Jana, servant leadership, finally made it happen for us. Uh, because, as Harold Farnberg will tell you, those coffee pots are like operating the Star Trek Enterprise. Like, it's, they're su I, way beyond my pay grade. So, anyway, again, thank you for showing up, leaning in. Uh, you made me a better pastor, a better teacher. Your questions have been amazing. 
iron sharpens iron. You guys ask stuff that I, I never would have thought to have asked. And, um, and again, it enabled us to go deeper. And so uh, some of you have asked, will we do this at Brentwood? We will do some version of this in the future. I will probably start with some shorter series next year to see how that congregation responds. Uh, there's already several equipping classes and things that take place on the Brentwood campus on Wednesday night, but there'll be some version of this, uh, and there will be some version to continue. Uh, it may not look just like the way uh, I do it right now, but, uh, but we are committed to you as a church family, and again, grateful that as I look out, so many of you are life group leaders, deacons, key leaders in our church, leaders in our, our next-gen ministries, and so uh, I know, I pray that this has been a fruitful time for you, uh, that out of the overflow of that, uh, you have the opportunity uh, to, to take something uh, home that's, uh, that's deeper and feeds your soul. So let's go back to the first handout a little bit. And uh, I just want to remind ourselves why theology matters as much as ever. Uh, because as we move forward, I know uh, that it's easy to get busy with a lot of things in life. But it's important for us to remember that in the church, good, sound theology matters. I want to remind you, I've shared some of this before with you, but kind of redid it, repackaged it a little bit. Uh, there, there is a crisis of poor theology in the church. Uh, and Lifeway Research partners with Ligonier Ministries, and they do a st state of theology study every other year. They've been doing that since 2014. Uh, and so they say Americans hold a, quote, complex and conflicting views about theology. So a few takeaways from their 2020 study that were pretty astounding. One, theology, truth, or opinion. By the way, these are people who say we are evangelical Christians, we believe that Jesus saves, and we believe in the Bible. And yet, here's what they believe about theology. 54% state theology is not a matter of objective truth, but subjective personal opinion. Only 34% disagree with that statement, 12% aren't sure. Trinity confusion. 72% of Americans believe in the Trinity, yet most believe Jesus was merely a great moral teacher, 52%, and that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, 59%. That means we have a generation that's gotten their theology from Star Wars more than they have the Bible. Sin and salvation. Two-thirds of Americans, 65%, agree that everybody sins a little, but they would state that most people are, quote, good by nature. Ironically, there has been a slow but steady increase in those believing uh, that the deserving punishment for any sin is eternal damnation. Uh, since uh, 2014, that was 18%. It's come up to 26%. But only 56% believe that hell is a real place. Some muddled morality as well. And I think this is really, to me, kind of the stat that tells the story. 48% of people in our churches believe the Bible is 100% accurate in its teachings. But get this. 48% believe the Bible is helpful but mythological. So if you want to know why there's a divide in the church, well, there it is. 48% of the people are like, the Bible is authoritative, it's true, right? It's objective truth. 48% of them are like, well, the Bible's helpful, but it's full of a bunch of stories that are made up and, you know, these kind of things. 34% believe that modern science disproves the Bible. Only 51% view sex outside of biblical marriage as a sin. And 46% believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply any longer today. So again, right there at that 50% mark. So you wonder, right? All of these things have crept into the church. Why? Theology. Our ability to take the word of God, right, and develop a, a comprehensive belief system and worldview out of that. So question for you. Who's a theologian in this room? Raise your hand if you're a theologian. Good. All of you should have your hand in the air. 
And so I hope you remember that. Why? Because everybody is a theologian. In other words, everybody bases their life on some system of beliefs and values. The question is, are you a good theologian or a bad one? The question is, are you a biblical theologian? Or do you look somewhere else for your system of authority? So I put my little iceberg illustration there just to remind you that your actions and words are what live above the surface of your life. As I talk about often, what you do with your time, how you spend your money, the relationships that you invest in, these things are the things that people see on the surface of your life. But underneath the waterline, the unseen things, right, are your values. But those values at the core are your beliefs, what you believe in. And what happens is if those little blocks get unaligned, right, just like an iceberg, cracks begin to show. There's fragmentation in your life. That iceberg, that great big hunk of iceberg becomes unstable. And if those cracks deepen, right, parts of it break and fall off. And I think literally in the mental health crisis in our culture, I think within the instability of people to live uh, flourishing lives, that's what you're seeing happen. They have put together a worldview that is not consistent, that is not coherent. And so cracks begin to form in that life. And after a while, right, that life begins to fragment. And that life becomes very broken. Because they haven't turned to the word of God to say, I want to build my life on truth. It's the one thing that can hold me together. And as we talk about, that's truth with a capital T, as in a person, the person of Jesus who gave us his word. So how and why to study theology? Uh, as the Professor Kelly Capick, uh, who is uh, down at Covenant College in Chattanooga, says, I have seen good theology to liberate lives but I've also seen people misuse theology, resulting in abuse, hard hearts, and pain. So again, we want to be good theologians. So we can avoid theological detachment, which is this idea that there's a false divide between theology and life, or between academics and the church, or between truth and love, by approaching theology biblically and carefully. Uh, one of the books I'm reading right now is interesting. It's called Biblical Critical Theory where a pastor has said, so there's these critical theories that are out there, right, that say you see everything through this lens. Well, what lens should we see everything through? The Bible. And so he's a Christian professor from Australia, and he's literally, the book is this thick, right? But he's applying the Bible to all of our modern issues, right? A theory of everything based on what the Bible has to say. And so this idea that there's this false divide, right, that theology is something that's boring and you sit and you read a big old textbook, but it doesn't apply to your life is a false dichotomy. That's not the point of learning theology. Right? What Dr. Ortiz and other professors teach in the classroom is not supposed to be divorced from the ministry, right, that we carry out as pastors. It's supposed to inform that. It's supposed to uh, speak into that reality. The idea of, uh, of truth and love, as we talk about often, are not a dichotomy. They're not two separate things. They're designed to work together. Ephesians 4 says that the church should literally be truthing in love, is the literal Greek in Ephesians chapter 4. So truth and love, right, they're inseparable. They work together. That's the way God designed it. And a big part of a, the problem in our world is it's okay to take things apart, to look at them and examine them. But if you can't put them back together into a comprehensive worldview, then you've missed the big picture. And so like the pastor that I grew up under said, you know, when he was in seminary in the 70s, and it was all literal critical theory and, and biblical criticism and higher biblical criticism and all of these kind of things. They learned how to take apart scripture to its smallest pieces. 
right? You divide it and you parse the Greek and the Hebrew and you, you, you look at all of these. But he said, but we were never taught how to put it all back together again. And you think about the millions of people who were in churches in the 70s and 80s and are no longer right, connected to the church in any meaningful way. Why? Because they were shepherded by pastors who didn't even believe that God's word was true anymore. Because that's what they were taught even in our seminaries. And so the idea is, is that when we study theology well, right, it gives us a comprehensive worldview and a way of understanding life. So why do we study theology? Let's remember the big picture. Number one, we do it to know and enjoy God. That's part of the joy, right, is you discover these things. When we went through the characteristics of God, right, you begin to realize, whoa, there are all of these what we call communicable attributes of God. Right, ways that we reflect the Imago Dei, the image of God. How cool is that? But then there are all these things that are what we call non-communicable attributes of God. Ways that God is distinct and different from us. And you begin to realize, whoa, God is so big. It's like standing at the ocean for the first time, right? Or standing on a mountaintop and just looking at all those peaks and valleys. And you realize just how great God is. What does it say in Deuteronomy, right? Chapter 11, verse 15. Take care, Moses says, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. One of the reasons that we study theology, right, is that our hearts are not deceived so that we do not turn aside and serve other gods, lesser gods. The way I shorthand that is, right, part of the job of theology, part of the job of the Bible, part of the job of worship is to help us see and smash the idols in our lives. We need to be able to see them for what they are, and we need to smash them and be sure that God is on the throne of our hearts and of our lives. Proverbs 1-7, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And of course, that word fear, utmost respect and reverence. John 4-23, worshipers, true worship, worship in spirit and in truth. So we were created for a relationship with God, and without that communion, we're lost. So growing in our knowledge of God changes our view of everything else. A.W. Tozer once famously said, if you want to know what's in a man, ask him about his view of God, and that will tell you everything that you need to know, right? If we believe in a big God, right, then we're going to calibrate our lives accordingly. But if we shrink God down to something, right, of our own creation, our own making, then we're going to be serving something else all together. Number two, we do theology to grow in our faith journey. Uh, we're able to grow. There is a God and we are not him. Uh, as I encourage you guys to tell each other and remind each other of Austin, often. God has self-revealed himself through scripture and the Son, so that we can have true knowledge of him, even if that knowledge is limited by our humanity. Because we are human, we can't fully comprehend God. There will always be more of him to know. And that's a part of the faith journey. That's what's exciting. It's why I, as a pastor, can come back to these same texts over and over again and discover things that I never saw there before. You can too. And because God is so great, we're going to spend an eternity getting to know our great God. And that's awesome. Uh, Exodus thirty-three seventeen, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, Please show me your glory. Man, that is audacious and crazy all at the same time to ask God a question like that. And so God said, I will make all my goodness. What's our theme this semester? The goodness of God. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Right? Moses' hunger was to see God's glory. And God said, I'm only going to give you a little glimpse of my backside. Why? Because we can't handle anymore. So God knows what we're able to handle. And he reveals himself to us in that way that we are in awe. And of course, after that, Moses' face shone for days just by getting a little glimpse of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul reminds us that we know now only in part. But one day we will know in full. 1 John 3, 2, one day we will see him as he is. I want you to think about that. Like we get really sidetracked and we think about heaven and we think about streets of gold and we think about mansions or all of those kind of things. But think about it. When we get there, we're going to see the fullness of who he is. And that's going to be the best part of it all is when we're in his presence forever. So it's to grow, right, to that point in our faith journey. Number three, we want to live what we believe. And as I've already talked about, true theology is lived theology. Paul models this in his letters as he moves from theological truth to practical application. It's why his preachers love Paul. Because the, the first part of his letters, right, he gives us theology, and then he's like, here's how it works in the church. Here's how it works in your marriage. Here's how it works in your parenting. Here's how this works out in your everyday choices and decisions. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us to guard our heart because it is what? The wellspring of life. So we need to be careful about what we put into our hearts, right, because it's going to work its way out in our lives. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 9 uh, through 13, he puts it this way. Uh, he says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor what the heart of a man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the spirit of the world, uh, but the spirit of God who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, that's one of the gifts that you have in your salvation, is the spirit helps you understand. If you wonder sometimes why you get excited about things and nobody else does, could it be that they don't have a relationship with Christ and they don't know the Spirit that's helping illumine these truths, that's helping them come alive in your heart and in your life? Never overlook the fact that one of the good gifts that God gives you is the fact that His Spirit helps you see spiritual truths. That to a person who's not a Christian, these are just words on a paper. But when you read them, right, they're living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword because the Spirit helps you interpret those and to live what you believe. Number four, we do theology to develop faithful reason. Some kind of faith commitment is essential, right, to all good thinking. In theology, reason rightly works in the service of faith. And faithful theology doesn't despise rational reflection. Faith empowers rather than confines reason. So this produces in us both confidence and humility. Remember Job's journey. 
In chapter 38, Job has been questioning God, and God says, what famously? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, big boy? Right? The big boy is my interpretation, just to be clear on that. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line out upon it? Oh, on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Right? A few chapters later, Job admits, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, right, Job went on this journey Right, in which he needed to understand the greatness of God. We think about the father of the young boy who was possessed in Mark chapter 9 that Jesus ministered to. And he cried out to Jesus, right? I believe, but help me in my unbelief. What an honest prayer to say, right? We believe, but man, Lord, I'm having a hard time understanding this. Will you reveal it to me? Will you help me see uh, how you work and understand faithful reason. Number five, we study theology to, devote, to motivate deeper prayer and study. One of the great dangers, of course, is that theology can make our faith something we merely discuss instead of something that moves us. Brian reminds you often, right, we should leave every time we encounter God's word a changed people. John 15, we are to abide in the word. And when we abide, we will do what? Bear much but it's only in the abiding, right, as we, we spend time in that deeper prayer and study, right, that God moves, that agricultural metaphor. We know that fruit takes a season. It takes a while to produce. And in the same way, sometimes we give up much, much too quickly. So when you find something that's challenging, something you don't understand in Scripture, don't lean away from it, but lean in. And let that word, right, be planted deep in the soil of your heart. And give it time, water it, allow it to grow, and then it will bear much fruit. We study theology, number six, to lead us to humility and repentance. We've already seen that in the life of Job, right? But we see it in 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's part of the issue we have, right? And quote, professional Christianity among pastors and theologians and professors are people who, in essence, right, are saying, I'm the one who's going to tell you what God's word says instead of a posture that says, no, 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 I'm going to place myself under the authority of God's word and seek and labor using the good tools that God has given me, my mind and the expertise of others and the understanding of biblical context in order to understand what it meant to its original audience so we can draw out the parallels to understand what it means to our lives today. There's, a, there's an approach that you take when you come to God's word and the study of theology by which, we, by which we must humble ourselves and not try to put ourselves in judgment or authority over God's word. I can tell you in 30 seconds when I'm listening to a pastor or a theologian or a teacher what their posture is because of the attitude of their heart towards God's word. Are they saying, listen, humbly, right? This is what I've studied. This is what God's revealed to me. This is what he's shown me. Or are they trying to sit in judgment on God's word? Uh, and so it's important that we're moved to humility and repentance. Revelation of God always leads to repentance. Think about it. When God shows up in the storyline of the Bible, people aren't like, oh, yeah. They're like, oh, woe is me. 
I am undone, I am unclean, I am filthy, right? They recognize immediately their sin and their need for repentance. So true revelation, and it's the same when we read the word of God, right? It's God's very presence, his words to us. And so it should lead us to repentance. So theologians must be honest brokers who realize that we are sinners dependent on God's grace. Psalm 138.6 says, the Lord is exalted. He takes note of the humble. And so we have to walk with humility as we study. We study theology, number seven, to move us to compassion. Faithful worship includes the showing of God's mercy in the midst of all the human sin and misery that's around us. So theology should lead us to love God, but out of the overflow of that love, we should love our neighbor. Theology that lacks compassion is no theology at all. So that's a part of the danger, right, sometimes is that knowledge does what? Puffs up. But love builds and so theology should lead us, right, to, to using our hands and feet to put it into action. This is what God used the prophet Isaiah to, to call out the people of Israel about in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand why. Verse 16. He calls them to wash themselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Of course, Micah would echo those same themes, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And who is your neighbor? Jesus taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, not just the guy you like sitting next to you in the pew, not just your favorite neighbor across the street who brings you cookies, right? Your neighbor is the person that God puts in your path. Your neighbor is anybody that God puts in your path, anybody that God, by his grace, has allowed you to have a divine appointment with, and we are to look at them through the eyes of compassion. One of the greatest lessons that I've learned as a pastor about interacting with people who are different than me has come from Brian's son, Benjamin, who interacting with these elites in our culture said, you have to see the person first. You see their ideology second. And you only address the label third. But what does our world do all of the time? We slap a label on somebody and then we attack the label. Maybe we'll go after the ideology, right, if we're intellectually and biblically rigorous. But we forget that behind all of that is a person, a broken human being who needs the love and mercy and grace of Christ Jesus. And so I want to exhort you, church, as you walk with this broken people in this broken world, right, see them as that's what Jesus did. He saw through the labels. He saw through the identifiers. He saw through the cultural markers. And he knew what they needed most was a relationship with him. And then the behavior would change. Then the lifestyle would change. And so remember that. As it says in James 1.27, pure religion, religion that God finds pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. People who cannot do anything for you, what are you willing to do for them in the name of the God who created them, right? And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's James 1.27. So it should move us to compassion. Number eight, it should deepen biblical community. Theology is best done in community. 
That's why it's a joy. Should we have our personal Bible study? Absolutely. But sometimes, let's be honest, we get the wrong idea or we get the wrong impression or we need a picture that's bigger than the one that just we have had or the experience that we've just had. So theology is best done in community. So one of the best times and the best ways to become aware of our cultural prejudices, to reduce our blind spots, is to spend time in the presence of the saints. And by that, I don't mean, right, saint this or saint that. I mean God's people, especially those who lived in different times or have come from different experiences of our own. It's why I love, as I look out, that we have people out here who are probably nine, ten years old, right, all the way to 80 plus in this room. And because it's beautiful when the generations come together from different experiences and different backgrounds, different walks of life, and we learn together. There's great things that happen when that happens. And I love that about Station Hill. And I pray we will always be an intergenerational church. And what does it say in Hebrews chapter 10? It says, uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near. So it's good when the church gathers to study God's word. It's good when we gather to worship. It's good when we gather to serve. It's good when we gather to study theology. Why? Because it should spur us onto what? Love and good works. As we're filled with the love of God and understanding of who he is, that should spill out of our lives. And so we should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Hmm, was this written in 2023? Right? One of the books right now that's making the rounds among our preaching team is called The De-Churching of America. Do you realize that we are in the moment, cultural moment, in which the greatest transition in church attendance is happening in American history? Since 2016, 40 million active churchgoers have stopped going to church. The next greatest movement was people going to church after the Civil War, in which in that same five-year span, 25 million people started going to church in the United States. But we are living in a cultural moment in which more people are dropping out of active church attendance than at any time in history. And do you know what the authors discovered? You know what will get them back to church? This is going to just, this is totally technically really difficult to understand. Here's what will get them to come back. An invitation from a friend. That's what they discovered. That there are all these people for various reasons have dropped out. Maybe they've taken a culture view of the church. They disagree with its teachings. Maybe they've relocated. A lot of people have shifted after COVID to different communities and different places. But, but what they found was that most people would come back to church if someone simply invited them. That's the profound findings of that church. Now you don't have to go buy the book, see? So I just told you what it was all about. But let's not neglect, right, the gathering of ourselves, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. What happens when we get together to study God's word? We encourage each other. I hear from you what God's doing in your life. I hear from you how God has used his word in your life to rebuke you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness. And all of a sudden, I see something I didn't see before, and I'm able to walk with you in that. So we encourage one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near, urgency. Jesus is coming back. Our time is running out. So we've got to spur each other on. We have to remind each other of how important these things are. So we do that together in biblical community. And then finally, of course, to increase our love of Scripture. 
Good theology trains to avoid the ditches of biblical cism. Right? That's, that's the misuse of Bible, such as proof texting and progressivism. We've talked a lot about that over the years. The extreme selectivity that resists biblical authority. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Psalm 119.162, I rejoice over your promise like one who finds treasure. Every time you open your Bible, you're going on a treasure hunt. And you're going to find something that's worth more than gold. That's the way I feel about preaching. So, you know, I was asking a video interview not too long ago, right? How do you know when you're ready to preach? And my, one of my favorite quotes, I think it came from John Piper at a conference. I can't even remember where I picked it up. But it was, I find myself ready to preach when I find my soul thrilled with what God has revealed in the text. And I can't wait to get to Sunday to tell you guys about it. Right? I found that treasure. Here, here it is. Here's this truth. Man, isn't it beautiful to look at? Isn't God good to reveal it to us? Even if it's hard to hear, right? But isn't God good to tell us what we're up against, to show us what we need, right? It's a treasure. I love that verse. I rejoice over your promise like one who finds treasure. It's a treasure hunt when you open up his word. John 17, 17, where Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified, right? The goodness of God sanctifies us by what? Truth. Jesus prayed that for us, that the truth would sanctify us. And 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, guard the good deposit. So Christian theology, Dr. Capick says, is an active response to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. That's all worship. Whether it's vocal worship or worship with our lives, worship with our service, right? God reveals himself and we respond. Theology is no different, right? It's the active response to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, whereby the believer and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not doing this in our own strength, but in his, and subordinate to the testimonies of the prophets and apostles. So again, we're submitting ourselves to Scripture as recorded in Scriptures. And in communion with the saints, I love this, wrestles with and rests in the mysteries of God, His work, and His world. We wrestle with these things. Why? Because as we're going to see next week in Romans 7, right? There's an old nature within us. But we can rest ultimately in the mysteries of God. I can lay my head down on the pillow at night as a pastor knowing what? That God is sovereign, that God is at work, that he knows the end from the beginning, right? We can rest our heads on our pillows, right? We can go on with life resting that God is in control. And so uh, just a little devotional thought as we wrap up. Paul's last letter to Timothy was 2 Timothy. Now, to be clear, I'm not in a dungeon, and I don't plan on dying anytime soon, right? That was the, the context of that. But we all know uh, that when it comes to those last moments, those last words matter. And so flip with me in your Bibles to, to 2 Timothy. And no, I'm not going to read the entire letter to you, although I wish I could and had time. We've gone through it before. But I just want to remind you that the context of 2 Timothy was Paul was writing these words from an underground cell in Rome's infamous Mamertine prison. It's around AD 67. He's been under house arrest several times. That's what a lot of my students would say over the years. Wait, isn't Paul like always under arrest or something? It was like, well, yeah, because that's the only time he slowed down. And think about that. Even God's grace in that, giving Paul time to write these letters that we still have today. Because Paul was a planner, he was a preacher, he was a pastor, he was a doer. But even in those moments, right, God gave him the time and the space and the inspiration and the communion with him that no matter where Paul was physically, right, he was united to Christ by his spirit. And out of that spirit came these kind of words. 
So in these last words to his protege, Timothy, it's more personal. First Timothy is more focused on the church. Second Timothy is really more personally focused on Timothy and his calling. But I would tell you guys the same things that Paul told Timothy. Number one, guard the gospel. Right? Guard the gospel. Paul, at the beginning of the letter, talks about how a gospel-centered leader is shaped by God's grace through four influences. He cites Timothy's spiritual mentors. Paul was one of those. His spiritual heritage. He had a mother and a grandmother who were believing. We don't hear anything about Timothy's father being a believer. And so be encouraged, even if you don't come from a mom and a dad, right, from a heritage that is purely Christian, God can use you. Spiritual gifts and calling that God had given Timothy and his own spiritual disciplines were all shaped through those things. But he goes on to give Timothy in that first chapter three gospel imperatives. Number one, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Number two, don't be afraid to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. And number three, guard the gospel. I love what John Stott says. He says, but remember that even in entrusting the deposit of the gospel to our hands, God has not taken his hand off of it. So if you're about gospel ministry, no, because God's hand is on the gospel, then God's hand is on you as you carry out the gospel. Be encouraged by that promise. Chapter two, endure for the gospel. And he gives us these helpful word pictures, verses 1 through 13, right? That we should live in the gospel of grace continually, pass on the gospel ministry intentionally, endure for the gospel diligently as what? Word pictures of a dedicated soldier, a disciplined athlete, a diligent farmer. Remember that the Jesus who endured it all for us, right? He is with us in this journey. And in the last half of chapter 2, Paul talks about the faithful teacher focuses on biblical revelation and not human speculation as an unashamed workman, a clean vessel, and a servant leader. Paul, man, was master of the word pictures. And sometimes he would even, you know, kind of put them together in unusual and unique ways, mixed metaphors. Uh, and so, but Paul was memorable in the way that he called the church and Timothy specifically to endure for the gospel. And then in chapter 3, we need to persevere for the gospel. And so here we see that power of example where Paul talks about what to avoid, things like narcissism and materialism and hedonism, but Paul's own personal and powerful example. And then, of course, Paul famously ends chapter 3 by reminding us that Scripture, right, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus because all Scripture is breathed out. Paul invents a word in Greek, according to most scholars, theonuestos. Turn to your neighbor and say, Theonuestos. See, don't you sound like a scholar? You sound like a theologian now because you already are one, right? Theos, God, nuestos, right? The Greek word for breath or spirit. Same word. So God breathed out his word so that we could breathe them in. And so all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful, some translations say, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, Scripture equips us for exactly what God wants us to do. So if you feel like you're lacking, right, the place to go is not, right, how to do stuff for dummies books. The place to go is not to Google it. The place to go is God's Word. And from the principles that you learn there, you will be equipped for the work that God has already called you to do. What, what a good word for us. Uh, and it, literally that word equip means super equipped uh, for every good word. And then in chapter 4, of course, Paul says, proclaim the gospel. 
you watch the baton pass from Pastor Mike to me on Sunday, this was the passage that we focused on. Because, and the title of the sermon was The Unbroken Chain. Because the gospel had gone from Paul to Timothy, right? It went from Timothy, right, to faithful people in the church there. It has come down through the ages, right, through faithful pastors to everyone who is called. The unbroken chain. It's not about us, as Brian said earlier, right? It's about Jesus. And so what do we do? Our charge, five imperatives in verse two, is to preach the word is to be ready in season, out of season. Our preacher joke is that means Sunday comes around every three days. It's the day before Sunday, it's Sunday, it's the day after Sunday, and then you gotta get up and do it all over again. But you always have to be ready to preach the word. You need to be ready to use it to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. We used that agricultural metaphor a moment ago. It takes a while. You have to say the things over and over. Anybody parents or grandparents? I'm sure all of your kids get it the first time you tell them to do something, right? Wrong. We're the same way. And so God's word has to work over and over again. We have to hear it. It has to be reinforced over and over again in our lives for it to come to fruition, for it to bear fruit and with teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We're not living that world, are we? Oh, wait a minute. Sounds like everything we're dealing with. True in Paul's time, but true in ours as well. So he reminds us, right? Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But Paul, at the end of his life, is able to confidently say, look with me at verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And my question for you is, will you be able to confidently say at the end for you, listen, I wasn't perfect, right? But I have been able to keep the faith finish the course that God marked out for me. And remember, my course is different from your course. By God's wisdom and by his design, each of us have a different race to run, but we all have a race that he entrusts to. Are you, will you be able to say confidently, I have fought the good fight. I went down swinging all the way to the end. Paul modeled that for Timothy. He models it for us. And that's what we're living for. Because I believe the greatest moment in every believer's life will be before when we stand before our Savior and we hear these words. This is what I'm living for. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter your reward. So in all the mess of life and all of the challenges, keep that moment in mind because that's our greatest moment as believers. So it has been a joy to teach you guys, walk with you. I will continue to shepherd you just at a little bit more of a distance. I look forward to working with your next pastor. Um, I love you guys dearly. And in particular, uh, I love you guys who have showed up on Wednesday nights to walk with us. Again, you have been a blessing to me and Brian uh, in countless ways. So I don't know what questions we might have on the thread tonight. Maybe I'm a little terrified of what's on that thread for one last time, but um, you guys have been awesome and we love you. Excellent teaching, right? Excellent. Thank and, you. And, I, and I, I meant to mention this earlier too. I do, I, I love our entire congregation, but it, just the way the timing fell with October 1 being my official start date, 
uh, being able to come back and teach that my last teaching was with you guys on Wednesday nights is really fun um, because you guys have been the guys who have been there with us through like the judgment of the nations of Ezekiel. So like, you know, it's, <laughs> that really it, left a mark. Didn't I, it? it did. It's, I've yeah. still got that mark on me somewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was going to say, you, yeah, you were squirming in the front row. I really did think he was going to leave. He was sitting <laughs> over here kind of looking at notes and I was like, wow, that's, that's wild. That's wild. And the first question is, can we get 12 years of notes? <laughs> <laughs> They're out there. Um, I do have most of them. So if there is something in particular that you would like, shoot me an email, and I'll, yeah. I'll shoot you the notes. Yeah, we've, uh, we've assembled section. the... Yes. Yeah, I assembled the systematic theology handouts into a single document with an index. And I assembled the read through the Bible. Now, those are... 90 pages and 205 pages, I think, between the two of them. And so you, if you hit print, be sure you bought some paper. Um, Worse yet, be sure that you invested in some ink. It's exactly. Most yeah, expensive liquid in the, the world, world is printer ink. Yeah, so, so yeah, we'll, we'll tell me that and I'll buy some staple stock uh, before you start printing those yeah, things. But we will put those in an email and yeah. um, we'd send them out, but we talked about doing that again. So we yeah. will do that. And we'll by the way, when you get that, God bless the engineer who knows how to do those things on a computer because this pastor does not, right? So you can literally click through like systematic theology, you know, send, boom, it'll take you right there in the document, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and we use those. Labor of love. Yeah, absolutely. We we, we use both of those documents, especially the one I'm reading through the Bible. When I'm getting ready to teach a book, first thing I do is go to that document and remember what my overview is because I've summarized all the commentaries that I normally read. So it's incredibly useful. Um, Hey, Governor, who is your substitute teacher tonight? That would be you. <laughs> That's really funny, Greg. Um, could we, and a couple of similar questions. One was, could we get your cutting room floor newsletter in the future? And if you leave two-thirds of your sermon out each week, I'd love to see the director's cut. So, uh, that'd, that'd you be, say you do, yeah, but that'd be, that'd be I watch you guys when the clock hits noon. You start getting hangry. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. That's why I go to the 8 o'clock service. We've just had breakfast. Yeah, we're doing good. I've been up since 1.30. It's all fun. All right, a couple, couple of personal questions for you. Uh, question for Jay. Are you generally a fast driver? Be honest. Wow, am I generally a fast driver? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, a little bit, maybe. Okay. Is, I, I'm, well, here's what I'm scared of. Somebody seen me driving <laughs> recently? Is that, is that what this is there's about? One those, one of those is this a test? It's one of those little Apple tags. So, yeah, put one of those on my car. That's so. right. We've been following you around, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and apparently somebody asked if you still gargle with yellow Listerine. I do. Wow, what memory. That so is. I had an aunt who told me if you gargle with the old school nasty yellow Listerine, you'll never get sick. And I started doing that as a junior in high school, and I did not miss a single day of class all the way through my master's degree. Wow. Uh, and so anyway, so just a little hack. Not the blue stuff, not the purple stuff, not the cutesy <laughs> stuff. The nasty, nasty yellow. And you'll know why when you gargle with it for a minute and a half, right? And it looks so, like urine. So that's the, yeah, the wonderful yeah, part. Yeah, it doesn't taste much better. So yeah, anyway, but anyway, I, I don't know. That's a rant. Man, I do not that's, remember. That's it was like bold. a decade ago that I told somebody <laughs> that. Somebody has an amazing memory. <laughs> Out there. Say, that, yeah, that and was I'm not scary. That was not one I was anticipating. Okay, just, there you go. There it is. There's your you health know. tip for tonight. Yeah. Wow. So flu season is coming. <laughs> Yellow Listerine. Uh, and I was not paid for that can, product. Can a song. We all we all gargled with Yellow Listerine. Never mind. Uh, when will <laughs> when did we move into this room? Uh, uh, September of 2015. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, as far as though, no, we didn't know. Coffeehouse Theology. We met met in a classroom and we met upstairs for a little while. And then we met over here in the worship. We've been nomads. Yeah, we met in the the old choir room. So good question. I don't know. I don't either. 
It's been mean, a couple years. Yeah, we've, we've been here a little bit. Um, for whatever version of Coffee House Theology occurs at BBC, be available to listen to via podcast. Um, Don't know yet. Yeah. Highly possible. Yeah, they do video stuff, which terrifies me. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have a face made for, for audio. <laughs> a face made me for too. audio. So I'm not, not really excited about yeah. cameras. Yeah, we'll see. I tried to get them to put Brad Pitt into my wedding pictures. Um, let's see. Can we re-ask legitimate questions for you? I suppose so. Um, sure. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and Godspeed, friend. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're you, very excited for the next chapter. Um, uh-oh, things are starting to move. Uh, we need to do a victory tunnel for you, Jay, like at the end of a youth <laughs> soccer game. Uh, parents can make a tunnel you can run through. Um, and should we, one of the questions on the survey is, should we do a similar survey uh, of our congregation that, mm. they, that they did? It'd be, that would be interesting. Mm. That would be interesting, mm-hmm. especially across the nine campuses. It's, it's, very, di- it's a very diverse, uh, very diverse environment. Yeah, we have done some targeted surveys uh, prior to series before. Um, to help us understand what our people know or don't know and what we're trying to teach too. So, um, yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah. Interesting thought. Thank you for that suggestion. No, but an excellent teach. Thank you, thank you for 12 years of this, mm, right, of, ed- of edifying and building up the body and pointing us to Jesus. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to see the next chapter of what the Lord's going to do. We're thrilled to have you in the position that God has called you to mm, and uh, excited to see what's next here. Right. I know God, we, as we've talked about, God already knows who our next pastor is. Yep. Right. God already knows who our next pastor is. Right. And so we're just waiting for him to reveal him and we're being sanctified in the process. Yes, absolutely. Right? And, and let me say that as well. Um, you know, again, he will be different from me, um, but yet he will bring exactly uh, what this congregation needs yep. uh, for his next season. And, and I really believe with all my heart that a year from now, you guys are going to be like, Jehu, right? <laughs> uh, your, 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 your posture will be, okay? And, and I'm serious, in a good way. I kind of joke about that. But we'll be, hey, we know why Jay is where he's at, but we yep. know exactly why God called this man and his family here. Yep. Uh, I believe that with all of my heart. Um, and it's, I say a year because it just takes a minute, right? Um, but you guys will bless him, and you will love him the way that you have loved me and my family uh, and all of us who lead you well. So thank you for that. So with that, I want to I want to pray over you guys tonight. You guys have been awesome to pray over me. Uh, I got to do this over the staff, but um, uh, I've thought about this often. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer uh, in Ephesians chapter 3 over you guys tonight as we go. So let me do that. If you'll bow your heads, uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the journey that we've had together uh, into your word. And Lord, uh, someday we're going to sit around forever, those of us who are in Christ in heaven, and remember these moments when you taught us when your truth uh, corrected us, rebuked us, trained us in righteousness. Um, And Lord, uh, it it has been so good and rich uh, to dwell with these brothers and sisters. And uh, Lord, as we enter a new chapter and a new season, I think about Paul uh, and his prayer that he prayed over the Ephesian church. And so God, with Paul, for this reason, it says, I bow my knees before the Father uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Lord, as I look out tonight and people listening online, God, you know every single one of them by name. You know their families. You know their needs. You know their sin. You know their struggle. You know where they need the goodness of God in their lives. And so, God, I thank you that you know every single one of us and that according to the riches of your glory, that you would strengthen them with power through your spirit in their inner being. Lord, your spirit goes with each and every person who knows you. And so remind them of that, that your spirit is within them and strengthens them 
I pray that they would know that Christ dwells in their heart through faith and being rooted and grounded in love. And God, what a loving group of people this is. Lord, those roots run deep into a love that comes from the love of Christ. God, their grounding as people, how solid they are, comes from your love. I pray that they would continue to have the strength to comprehend, as long with all your church, the breadth and length, the height and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses even knowledge. God, we haven't gathered on Wednesday nights just to learn stuff. We've gathered to learn about you. And so, God, thank you for that, that we would know and that we would be filled, as it says, with all the fullness of God. So, Lord, would you fill my brothers and sisters in every way? That promise is here at the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, that Jesus Christ fills all things in every way. So would you fill my brothers and sisters with strength? Would you fill them with perseverance? Would you fill them with endurance? Would you fill them with wisdom to be good parents, to be good spouses, to be servants of your kingdom, to be good co-workers, to be agents of salt and light in the community and neighborhoods and schools that you place them in? God, would you fill them in every way? God, now to you, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Lord, you have done far more abundantly all than we could have asked and imagined you would do with this little church plant called Station Hill. God, thank you for how good you've been to us. And God, we know that you have great days ahead above what we can ask or think or even imagine. But God, that's not from us. That's according to the power at work within us. So God, would we always line our hearts and our lives with you. And God, ultimately at the end of the day, we do all of this for your glory and not ours. So to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you.